Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week's edition is about China. The Chinese military has just staged its largest ever military exercises in the Taiwan Strait. These came at a crucial time in domestic politics, as President Xi Jinping prepares to extend his period in power against the backdrop of a slowing economy and a society still subject to frequent COVID-driven lockdowns. My guest this week is the US-based academic and prominent China watcher, Professor Mingxin Pei. So, how will China handle its growing challenges at home and abroad? Chinese rhetoric on Taiwan has always been ferocious. But the visit to the island by Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the US House of Representatives, provoked Beijing into an unprecedented display of military might to underline its often repeated threat that China might one day invade the self-governing island if it ever declares formal independence. To underline its might and its anger, the Chinese military released a propaganda video tweeted out by the Chinese ambassador in Washington and full of sirens, explosions, chanting troops and soaring ballistic missiles. President Xi can ill afford to look weak at this particular moment in history. Later this year, the Communist Party will stage a crucial Congress, when Xi will look to secure a third term as party leader, something that would be unprecedented since the long reign of Mao Zedong. Xi's zero-Covid policy, initially hailed as a success, has been brought into question by the emergence of the highly infectious Omicron variant. A series of draconian lockdowns has crippled business and social interaction in major cities like Shanghai for weeks at a time. Public impatience with this boiled over at a Shanghai branch of IKEA recently, when shoppers broke through a blockade as health officials attempted to seal the site. So how secure is she now? And what does he have planned for China and the wider world? To get an idea, I turn to Mingxin Pei, Professor of Governance at Claremont McKenna College in California and author of numerous books on China, including China's Trap Transition. We started by discussing Beijing's response to the Pelosi visit. I asked Mingxin Pei if it was stronger or perhaps weaker than he'd expected. It was more than I was expecting because I thought they would have reacted, but not to such an extent in terms of the scale of the military exercise and also the aggressiveness, how close it was to Taiwan. And then I think the follow-on reaction, the follow-on measures uh, in retaliation 
against the U.S. These were totally unexpected. So those follow-on measures, what were they? They cancelled a series of military dialogues. And I think in terms of managing a future crisis, these are very important. Defense dialogue, a naval incident at sea dialogue. So I thought that's very, very risky. So how do you account for the strength of this Chinese reaction? What do you think is going on? I would say two things. One is that they really want to demonstrate resolve. They want to show both to the Taiwanese and the Americans that you're pushing us too far. We are at the limit of our tolerance. So this is, I think, one at the strategic level. The other is just at a very practical, pragmatic level. They just want to see how good they are. They're conducting an exercise they've never conducted before involving joint forces, testing the latest hardware, and also trying to see if they can actually learn something from a very complex operation, such as a full blockade of Taiwan. Yeah, and I mean, I guess that one of the things that worries me about modern China, sort of viewed from a distance, is that they've had 20 years of a huge military build-up combined with a lot of nationalist rhetoric in the press. And it almost seems like parts of the society, maybe parts of the government, in their less rational moments, want a war to sort of test national machismo, to test the rise, you know, to demonstrate a rise. Yeah, I'm actually not that worried because a military defeat as a result of an attack on Taiwan could be an existential defeat for the Communist Party. So the Communist Party is not going to gamble away. It's hold on power. So you think they're bluffing? Well, it's not bluffing. I think they're trying to show that we're willing to fight, but don't push us that far. What I actually worry about is an accidental conflict. And I also worry about, looking forward, the situation where you have something like a Cuban Missile Crisis moment. That is, China wants to stage a military exercise on a much larger scale, with much more destabilizing effect on the regional security and the U.S., wants to challenge that, sending its own forces. And then you're going to have a very, very delicate and dangerous situation. So, I mean, just briefly then, talking about the American reaction, if you were, you know, you're based in California, if you worry about an accidental conflict, how do you think the Americans are playing it? I mean, where did you stand on whether it was a good or bad idea for Pelosi to go in the first place? And also the US is now, sounds like they're going to send ships, but maybe not an aircraft carrier. It's an odd calibration they're doing. Well, obviously, there are two aspects to this question. One is the Pelosi visit itself. I think Pelosi doesn't care. She has a record. What, a record of being pro-democracy in China? Pro-democracy, pro-Taiwan. And I think in the context of recent deterioration, because it's not just one visit, you have to look at really massive changes in U.S. policy toward Taiwan. And the Chinese side believes that we have to start something here in order to prevent the U.S. from moving further. And these massive changes include things like meeting Taiwanese officials in U.S. government buildings, which they never used to do and that kind of thing. Yeah, the framing of the One China policy and sending military hardware to Taiwan, talking about defending Taiwan and sending Marines to Taiwan to train. So these things, again, the Chinese, of course, have a much more open-ended interpretation of the One China policy. So they believe that the U.S. is now hollowing out. This is actually 
the official Chinese description, calling out one China policy, and the Pelosi visit is on the border of some kind of official recognition. So I think the Chinese side may have some kind of ground to fear the trend, not necessarily this particular incident. So I would say that at some point, they're going to do something very similar, even with or without the visit. And I think the Pelosi visit, probably the timing is a little bit tricky. But they were going to draw a line in the water or the sand at some point. At some point, yes. So that is the timing and the trend. So I'm not going to question the wisdom of... Because you also get into a tricky thing of whether it's a wise thing or a moral thing, you know, doesn't... Yes, yes. And also then you raise the issue of should we actually not do things because the Chinese don't like it. And of course, you will say that, is it really smart for China to engage in such an act of intimidation? And of course, the other thing that a lot of people spoke about, Ray, the timing of Pelosi's visit is that it's August. She has this critical moment in his political career coming up in October, November, probably November, when the party congress is meant to give him this unprecedented third term as president. How much do you think that will have played a factor in his thinking? I think that definitely played a role in raising the stakes because, of course, the Taiwan issue is actually an elite politics issue. A leader who appears to be impotent will be attacked by his colleagues because this is an issue on which a top leader, even a powerful leader like Xi Jinping, can actually be vulnerable. So that is one. And I think cynically, you might say that the right kind of crisis, the right kind of tensions may actually benefit Mr. Xi because he can show that he's strong, he can rally the nation, he is defending Chinese national honor. So in a sort of strange sort of way, Pelosi may actually have helped Xi Jinping. Because the sort of consensus opinion seemed to be earlier this year that of course she was going to be confirmed, he would get his third term, go on. Then I think with the problems with the Shanghai lockdown and so on, you began to hear murmurs saying, well, maybe it's not 100% certain. My view is a 99% certain. He's still going to get his third term. The immediate problem concerns personnel choices. That is, obviously, he's lost a great deal of political capital as a result of the zero COVID approach because the impact on the economy is devastating. And then the perception that this policy is now counterproductive. To be as a fair, this zero COVID policy worked until it stopped working. So initially, I think Mr. Xi and his colleagues had a lot to be proud about. And now they're putting out one fire after another as a result of Omicron. As we speak, probably the Communist Party top elites are meeting in Beidaihe, this seaside resort, to put the final touches on the next political standing makeup. His problem is what kind of concessions he needs to make in terms of personnel appointment. Explain. I mean, when you say concessions, who is he making concessions to? Really important is the position of the prime minister. Premier Li is term limited. Uh, The president is not term limited, but the premier is. So the premier has to move to a different position. And originally, the rumor mill claimed or said that she would like to have the Shanghai party boss to be the premier. And obviously, after the Shanghai lockdown, that person's political fortune has waned. So who would be appointed to that position? So I think they are now really talking about the position of prime minister, the executive premier, and maybe one or two other people. 
So how complete is Xi's control of the Communist Party? I mean, he sent some very important people to prison, you know, in the anti-corruption drive and so on. So that looks like a strongman leader who really controls everything that he surveys, but maybe not, you're saying. Well, I think there are two kinds of power. One kind of power is the power of direct control, the kind of power that can protect your personal or political security. On that dimension, he's completely in control. That is, controls the propaganda, he controls the military, now the domestic security apparatus, and of course the anti-corruption agency. I think the other dimension of power is the power to get things done, the power to motivate, the ability to incentivize, to get your policies implemented at the local level. On that dimension, I think there's a huge question mark. And so what's he unable to do? What kind of policies are stagnating then? I think the recent scandals about China's semiconductor drive, when China has invested more than $100 billion in semiconductors, and right now they discovered that a lot of money had been stolen by state-owned enterprise. And also his dream, his vision of having common prosperity. Which means essentially getting rid of extreme poverty in China, yeah? Not only that, he has another initiative called Precision Poverty Relief. And that campaign supposedly has been concluded. But common prosperity means reducing income inequality. And one of the key measures is the levying of a property tax. And it turns out to be impossible because that tax is going to hurt the middle class who owns a lot of property, and then officials, because Chinese officials also own a lot of real estate. So that kind of policy is very difficult to implement. Yeah. And I mean, another thing that struck me, certainly thinking about this controversy about zero COVID and the two-month lockdown in Shanghai, which is obviously incredibly punishing, and there are other lockdowns all over the country, was that it slightly surprised me that they hadn't managed to vaccinate all the old people in China because my outside image is this is a state which whatever else you can say about it is controlling, gets things done. How did that happen? I have not really looked into this, but based on what I've read, it seems that made a very important miscalculation at the beginning because they wanted to open schools. So they prioritized the vaccination of young people and they neglected the more senior citizens And another thing is that there are a lot of doubts about the efficacy, the safety of Chinese vaccines. And if you're 65 and older retirees and they have some doubts, it's pretty hard to force them uh, to get the vaccination. And what do you think the psychological impact on China, I mean, its economy, its relations with the outside world, the fact that as a result of the zero COVID policy, basically uh, travel in and out of China has become if not impossible, nearly impossible for the last two years and more. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought up this question. Other than students who can still travel back and forth, there are really not many Chinese ordinary citizens who can travel freely. So as a result, and we're at this such crucial moment in history, they don't know what is going on outside. For example, at the beginning of the pandemic, Western democracy's response to COVID was described as an unmitigated disaster. And if they don't come out and they don't see how actually successful now, how normal life has become outside China, they would have very serious doubts about the right approach of their government. Yeah. Coming back to this uh, third term thing, I mean, how 
much of a turning point do you think it is for China that you have a president and a party leader? I mean, it's the party leadership, actually, that will be confirmed in November and then probably the presidency next year, actually abolishing term limits and staying on. Are we returning to sort of personality cult style politics? Oh, absolutely. I think this is a very, very critical moment for the Communist Party itself. Because after Mao died, Deng Xiaoping tried to do everything he could to prevent the return of a Mao-like figure. And now reality shows that his efforts actually did not succeed because he did not build up strong enough institutions to uh, ensure that won't happen. So I think what a lot of people worry is not about the third term. Is it really about the fourth term? (laughs) I think this is an issue Mr. Xi has to deal with because the party wolves saying, well, give us some kind of indication that this is truly your loss. I think besides the personnel issue, this is going to be a very sticky point. And what about the building of this image of Xi? I mean, the creation of this Xi Jinping thought, putting it in the constitution, making Communist Party members study it every day. I mean, it seems to me a lot of people must harbor a lot of private doubts about that because, you know, they're highly educated people in China. It's a bit kind of humiliating to have to (laughs) parrot all this nonsense. Yeah, but then people in China are very pragmatic. They can live in this bifurcated world. They know that one side of politics is about ritual, and that ritual you have to perform. Whether you believe it or not is irrelevant because this is part of politics in China. And then the other part of politics is substance, is reality, is pragmatism. And so you can envision the same official who proudly displays his phone to you to show that he's done his morning exercise in reading Xi Jinping's thought. Then he turned around and uh, he can talk in very pragmatic terms about his daily challenge. That's very interesting. I mean, I suppose Western politicians are constantly saying things they don't quite believe in, but the ritualistic element of Chinese politics, and down to the repetition of key phrases. Yeah, very robotic, actually, rote memory. It's very different from the Maoist era. I grew up in the Maoist era. Those days, people actually genuinely believed in that kind of political rituals, the substance of Mao. So today, we have to discount a great deal whether Xi Jinping's thought has actually been genuinely embraced by the party members, by officials, and by ordinary people. What about your colleagues in the academic world? I mean, university professors, a lot of whom have been lured back because they're offered great packages, particularly in the sciences and so on, but then they find themselves in an increasingly illiberal political environment. How did they cope? They just shut up which is actually a huge loss. Both to the outside world, we now know a lot less about what they think. I have friends whom I desperately would like to meet. It's not safe to exchange views through WeChat, which is the most common form of communication with them. They don't talk about China. They don't want to take any risks. And now they can't even leave China. They can't leave China. I think this is really a very, very sad situation. Because there were sort of liberal, critical liberal ideas were sort of developing in the key universities in Beijing and so on, pre the Xi era. But I wonder what's happened to those people. That space has completely closed. A few have lost their jobs. Then the smart ones simply shut up. They don't write. They don't talk. They are honest enough not to even perform, participate in those political rituals. And what about Xi himself? What do you think his 
thinking is, is he somebody who aspires to be a new Mao? I mean, maybe the Cultural Revolution left an imprint on him. Yeah, there are aspects of Xi that certainly recall Mao, but I don't think in his heart he wants to be another Mao because Mao obviously was a very complex sort of a tyrant. On the one hand, Mao's sole concern was his personal power. I mean, obviously you can see that in Xi as well. But Mao also has this obsession with rousing the masses. Mao distrusted bureaucracy. And you don't see that in Xi. Xi actually is obsessed with stability. Mao thought unrest is a great thing. So one of Mao's slogans was, the world is in chaos, and that is great. You will never hear that from Mr. Xi. Right. So that's interesting. So Mao was a man who loved turmoil and Xi is somebody who's addicted to stability, which is very characteristic of modern China. So why is he prepared to risk that stability by confronting the United States? Well, I think initially, he probably thought his predecessors were very risk averse. And he said, well, there were a lot of boxes that need to be ticked. And because of this concern of antagonizing the U.S., those boxes were not ticked. The South China Sea for example, Singapore Islands and Chinese influence in the developing world. So he wanted to tick those boxes and he saw the U.S. in those days was still bogged down in the Middle East, in South Asia, and the U.S. domestic politics was so divided. He said, well, Uncle Sam would be too preoccupied, too distracted to deal with China. And to some extent, he was right. He was right, but then he didn't expect that Trump would actually be in the wild. Initially, Trump really did not care that much about those strategic things, but Trump cared about one thing, that's trade deficit. And he decided to confront China over the trade deficit. I think today, I wouldn't say he's deliberately picking a fight. When you look at Chinese overall strategic posture, my conclusion is that it's in a period of retrenchment. But on the other hand, you know, maybe it was bad luck, bad timing, but he has this meeting with Putin on February the 4th where they sign this joint statement. Yes. And I think that was extremely damaging to China if he doesn't want a confrontation with the United States because in America's mind, that sealed the idea that there's this access between Russia and China. Yes. I interpret that meeting quite differently because I think at a strategic level, he and Putin both concluded that they now needed each other. Because I've categorized the Chinese-Russian relationship as one that began as a relationship of convenience. Now it is a relationship of necessity because they now truly need each other because both feel that the U.S. is breathing down their necks and they have to hand together or hand separately. Then I think the big question is, did they actually know what Putin was up to? The Sino-Russian strategic alignment has a lot of upside for both Putin and Xi in the medium-long term. But the short term, if Putin decided to invade Ukraine, and this relationship actually would be placed on enormous strains. And now we see that this relationship is on enormous stress because of the invasion, because no limits turned out to be not true. There are a lot of limits to that relationship. So she continues, you say 99%, he's there. But how far do you think 
he is delivering on his promises for China. I mean, I remember the only time I've met him was in 2013, and that was right at the beginning. And he sets out this idea of, you know, growing at 7% a year, he predicted, and eradicating poverty and making China, in this rather kind of moderate phrase, a moderately prosperous nation. Is he delivering? Well, I think if you look at growth numbers, certainly the last 10 years is not as good as the previous 10 years before she came to her. But of course, you can cite the problems created by his predators over leveraging. And, so, well, and it's harder also when the countries get richer to keep growing at that rate. But I think the real problem is productivity growth, because productivity growth in the last 10 years has collapsed. Under Hu Jintao, the first decade, China's productivity growth every year was like 3%. Now it's down to 1%. So that's really a very scary development. The other is how much innovation has really happened. So the economic record clearly is a very mixed one. I think the biggest problem that has occurred in the last 10 years is really the changing mindset. Because prior to 2012, the government was more or less hands-off in terms of the private sector. Last couple of years, we saw this very dramatic crackdown on the private sector. And the confidence of the private sector has been fundamentally shaken. So going forward, the challenge for Xi the next 10 years is going to be unimaginable. He came into office with this very strong wind at his back. The relationship with the outside world was still good. The entrepreneurs were optimistic. China was optimistic. And a lot of economic momentum now, next 10 years, he is facing a completely different world outside. And internally, the economic problem China faces will be even worse. That is, how do you actually switch gear, turn away from global integration, relying on market, to relying on the state, rely on self-sufficiency? Obviously, I think even without economic training, I know that that is a much more difficult task to perform. Listening to you, I mean, it seems to me you can pinpoint a number of things that have changed really significantly in the Xi years. Firstly, the stuff we talked about, about the creation of a personality cult and the extension of his period in office. Secondly, the destruction of this good relationship with the outside world or relatively positive relationship. But the third you just highlighted, and maybe it's yes. the most important, was this attack on the private sector yes. and the iconic figures in Chinese business, Jack Ma, and suddenly he's almost a non-person. If people see him in public, it's huge news. Uh, and they knocked trillions off the valuations of the big Two trillion. <laughs> companies, which, you know, if you were following the Japanese model, these would have been the standard bearers for China, you know, the Sonys, the Mitsubishis, and yet suddenly he's turned on them. So why did that happen? And is it reversible? Yeah, it is reversible, but... It's unlikely to be reversed. Uh, I think why it happened, I think it's just one word, because these companies, or the private sector as a rule, has become too powerful for the party to feel comfortable about. So it's really an effort to reassert the control of a Leninist state over this wealth creation engine. And now the engine is sputtering. And that may be the biggest flaw, really, in the whole Xi model. Oh, this is one of the biggest concerns business people have, China watchers have, that can you actually make China grow with a statist model? History shows you can't. 
history also shows that China has grown in the last 40 years, mainly because of the private sector. That was Professor Ming Shenpei, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks for listening. Please join me again next week. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com.